Welcome to Practical Christian Living. He said, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all of my possessions. He was proud of the religious things that he did. The religious things that we do are important, but we can never find our self-worth in them. If you think that we are better than other people because we go to church or because we read our Bible or because we tithe or because we take communion, then we become pharisaical. Hi there, you're tuned into Practical Christian Living, where God's Word becomes practical and applicable to what we do and how we act long after this radio broadcast is over. We are in our series, Jesus Appointments, as we look at someone we might never have guessed Jesus would take the time to not only approach and meet with, but call to follow him, Matthew, a tax collector. Like Jesus, may we never avoid or look past those around us who are rejected by everyone else. We're in Mark chapter 2 and 3 today. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we want to thank you that we can actually come to your word, that we can see the things that you tell us to do. It is alive, it is active, it works in our hearts, it doesn't return back void. You have preserved it from generation to generation, and we are so thankful for the truths that we find in it. Now, especially as we are looking at the life of the one who reveals the Father to us, and as we see these appointments, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us today as we study your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. We're in the middle of a series called Jesus Appointments. And the study today is looking at the Matthew appointment. It's actually, it's actually very short. The appointment with Matthew was very short, really quick. But what comes after it, this contrast and comparison is really profound. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were considered to be sinners. They were looked down upon by the religious elite. And so what follows after Matthew was called is this contrast between the Pharisees and those who are sinners, between tax collectors and sinners. So we're going to be looking at that comparison and contrast between the tax collectors and the sinner. A tax collector was seen as a traitor because they worked for Rome. In fact, it must have been interesting. Jesus also called someone who was a zealot, Judas, who would have been political. Matthew worked for the Romans. I often wonder what kind of conversations they must have had around the campfire. The religious elites were the scribes and the Pharisees. The tax collectors found his place among the sinners. He would gather together with those who were immoral, those who were sinners because they weren't received and accepted by others. These, the tax collectors and sinners, were looked down upon by the religious Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and lawyers. In fact, you remember that when Jesus was having a meal with Simon the Pharisee, he was invited by Simon over to his house and Jesus went. He went to go meet with Pharisees as much as he did go to sinners, but he went over to his house and while he was there, a, an immoral woman came in and she fell down at his feet and being overcome by her sin, she began to weep and cry on his feet and then to wipe the tears away with her hair. And Simon said in himself, if this, if this were the Messiah, he would know who it was that touched him and would not let her touch him. That's the way they felt about sinners. They looked down at it. They saw themselves as being better than, than other people. And this is the perfect spot to have this comparison and contrast. 
In fact, it's not the only place in the Bible that we find it. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus draws the comparison between a tax collector and a Pharisee in a famous parable. He says that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. That's what religious people do, by the way. They pray to themselves. They aren't really praying and seeking God. They're praying to be seen by people. Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray to be seen. When you do your righteous acts, don't do them in front of men, but do them in secret where your father who, who sees in secret will reward you openly. This, this Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. Can you imagine praying with that kind of pride? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm special. That's what this Pharisee thought, and that he wouldn't be like extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. And then he said, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all of my possessions. He was proud of the religious things that he did. The religious things that we do are important, but we can never find our self-worth in them. If you think that we are better than other people because we go to church or because we read our Bible or because we tithe or because we take communion, then we become pharisaical. Then he says that the tax collector and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How much shorter his prayer was and what a contrast between the arrogance of the Pharisee and the humility of the tax collector or the humility of the sinner. Jesus said in verse 14 of Matthew 18, excuse me, of Luke 18, I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. As we see the comparison and contrast in Mark chapter 2 between the sinners and the Pharisees, the last thing that we want to be is pharisaical. We want to put Phariseeism as far away from us as we can. And I'm afraid, as Christians, sometimes we allow it to creep in. We feel that we are superior because we keep our little rules. The interesting thing about the Pharisees was that they, they kept the law. They were, they were the ones who did it. The Sadducees didn't, but the Pharisees did. They kept the scriptures. They kept the law, except that they added to it. They made their own little rules, their own regulations, and felt that they were superior because they kept their rules and their regulations. I am afraid that Christians today are doing the same thing, that we keep the Bible, we want to do what the Bible says, but we come up with our own rules, our own regulations, and then when people don't keep our rules and our regulations, we feel superior over them. When I was the youth pastor in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, that was a lot of years ago, I, was, uh, I also had a shop, and I worked a lot of hours at an auto upholstery shop. I worked a lot of hours in that shop. Then I would come home, and I'd have to decompress for a while, and then I would have to, two or three days a week, spend time preparing the study for the high school group. And I was not really doing that. I wasn't doing it the way I should. I was waiting for the last minute and then kind of throwing it together, and I felt like it wasn't really good. And uh, so I told my wife, Lisa, let's, uh, let's get rid of the TV. Now, I didn't want to get rid of it permanently, I wanted to find some place to just give it to. They could give it back later on, all right? But I just thought, I am not disciplining myself the way that I need to be to be able to prepare the study for these kids. So I would like to not have a TV in the house. 
That way, I'll come home, I'll decompress, and I'll get into my Bible study. About two weeks later, somebody asked me if I'd seen the Monday night football game, and my response to them was, you have a TV? I don't have a TV. It's funny that my weakness, the reason I didn't have a TV was because I wasn't disciplining myself enough to do what I was supposed to do, so I got rid of the TV because of my own weakness, but it only took two weeks until it became a sense of pride in me. I'm better than anybody that has TVs. If you guys have a TV in your house, I'm better than you. That's the way I began to think. I have a TV in my house, by the way, now. We have three TVs. One of them's in a guest room. But we have three TVs in our house, just, just so you know. I don't think I'm better than you. But you, if you don't have a TV, you might think you're better than me. This is the contrast that we find between these Pharisees and, and uh, Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. So let's start in chapter 2. We see it in verse 14. It says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this is Matthew. And it tells us a little bit more about Matthew, by the way. It tells us that he is probably from the tribe of Levi. I guess you could have the name Levi without being from the tribe of Levi, but you got to think there's some connection between the tribe of Levi and Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Maybe his mother was from the tribe of Levi. Maybe his, his father was from the tribe of Levi. R remember that John the Baptist's dad was from the tribe of Levi because he was a priest, but his mother was related to Mary, who was from the tribe of Judah. So John the Baptist's mom was from the tribe of Judah. Her dad was from the tribe of Levi, so they didn't always intermarry with the same tribe. So, so maybe Levi had one or the other. But if he was really a full-blooded Levite, I wonder if his mom or dad had aspirations for him to become a priest. Oh, if he could just go into the ministry, if he could just go take care of the temple, I'm going to name him Levi in hopes that he'll go and do it. And then he becomes a tax collector. As he passed by, he saw, Cibi, uh, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. What a short appointment. He walks up and sees him there. He says, follow me. And Levi goes, all right. And he lays everything down and he follows him. What, a, what an example of obedience. How I'd like to have that kind of obedience when God clearly says something to me that I would respond that quickly, as quickly as, as Matthew does. And we think about this one who was a tax collector and how God chose him to write the first of the gospels. The first one that we come to is the guy that was sitting there. In verse 15, it says, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house. Here, here we have a tax collector. Tax collectors made their money by charging people too much. They had an amount of money that they were paid, but if they could collect more than they were supposed to, they got to keep it. When a tax collector asked John the Baptist, what should I do? John the Baptist said, don't collect more than you're supposed to. They collected more. So Levi has a house, has wealth, and Jesus goes to his house and eats a meal that's from the money that he's done collecting taxes. This is something the Pharisees would have never have done. They would not have entered into a tax collector's home. They certainly would have, wouldn't have eaten food that was bought with money from collecting taxes. These were rules they made up. Notice that Jesus doesn't have any of these kind of man-made rules at all because what Jesus cares about is people. When we make our rules that go beyond the scriptures, we do it probably because it makes us feel better about ourselves. 
but maybe we isolate people by doing that very thing. And so Jesus sits down and has a meal in the house of Levi. And it says that Jesus and his disciples were there. It says, for they were many and they followed him. That is, there were many tax collectors that were there. There were many sinners that were there and they began to follow Jesus. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Because to them, they wanted to, to separate themselves from sinful people. Jesus came to minister to them, which is what Jesus says. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't call for those who were proud and self-righteous, but he came for those who were sinners. And what good news that is for us here. And often I find that people think when they have a really sinful background that they can't come to church, that they can't come to Jesus. This is a message that we probably should try to get out. That if you have been, if you have been overcome by sin, if sin has been destructive in your life, and when you give yourself over to sin, that's what sin does. It destroys things. If that has happened to you, Jesus sees you as oppressed by sin, and he has compassion on you, and he has come to you. He has come for you. He went to the cross and took those nails that he might be able to redeem you from that power of sin and to set you free. What a great statement for him to say. I wonder if we might not look down at people that we know that might be trapped in some kind of addiction or people that we know that might be trapped in some kind of a sexual sin and we look down on them instead of seeing what sin is doing to them. Jesus had compassion. It's not that the sin should be accepted. Jesus told the woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. But he did not condemn her, which is such an interesting thing. Then in verse 18, we get to the second scenario. There's four of them here, by the way. We get to the second scenario. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, before we read his response, let's talk a little bit about what fasting is and what fasting is not. Number one, fasting is not putting God in an arm lock, making him do what you want him to do. I really want this, and so God, I'm going to fast so that you do it for me. Number two, it doesn't give you extra spiritual power. You think if I fast, then I'm going to have extra spiritual power to be able to see God's work done. If, if I fast, then I'm going to be able to overcome some sinful desire that I have in my life. When Colossians tells us that the neglect of the body has no power against uh, those things that withhold us. Against, uh, does it make us more spiritual? What happens when we fast? We should fast when we are struck by something. The Bible says it's the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man that accomplishes much. When you see something and it strikes you, or, or one of your children is going through something, or a parent is going through something, or a brother and sister are going through something, and you're really, you're, you're, you're waking up at night thinking about it, it's, it's something that has really bothered you, that should be a cue that you would fast and pray. Because what you're saying is, I'm going to take this time that I would normally eat and have pleasure in eating, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to seek you in prayer instead, and you do it for someone. Fasting is a form of grieving. When you're grieving, you don't want to eat. And so it's saying, I'm taking this so seriously 
that I'm going to fast over this? Now, the scribes and Pharisees, they fasted to be seen by men. They walked around. They acted hungry. They didn't, they didn't straighten their clothes out. And Jesus even rebuked them early in the book of Matthew. He said, which is the tax collector telling people what Jesus said about the Pharisees. And Jesus said, don't walk around all disheveled, acting like, oh, I'm fasting. He said, but comb your hair and put on the right clothes. Don't do your works in front of men to be seen by men, which is what Pharisees do. And so when they ask him, how come Jesus didn't fast? Which is interesting because Jesus gave us examples as to how we're supposed to live, right? And he did fast for 40 days, which is an example that I personally, I have no desire to follow. If God really wants me to fast and he communicates that to me, I will for 40 days, I will. When I fast, it's interesting, uh, and I fasted a lot when I was younger to try to overcome sinful desires because I thought and was taught that if you fast, you get power to overcome sinful desires. But it was funny, as soon as I started fasting, I started craving food I didn't even like. <laughs> didn't even like it. But as soon as, I, you know what? I didn't even have to miss a meal yet. I just had to go, I'm going to start fasting right now. And then a few minutes later, oh man, you know, desiring something that you couldn't even have. So it says that Jesus said to them, can the friend of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, there's a time to fast and there's a time not to fast. You don't fast when you're rejoicing, when the bridegroom is there. You fast when you're not, when the bridegroom is gone. He says, but the days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast in those days. Years ago, I did a wedding and the, the groom and bride told me that they really wanted to consecrate their marriage to God. And so they were going to do it by fasting for the first three days of their marriage. I told them, I appreciated that they really wanted to, to start off consecrating their marriage to God, but I'm not quite sure that's the best time to fast. And the opposite. You know, you should feast on those first three days. You should rejoice. You certainly don't want to be mourning. I hope you're not mourning for the first three days after you're married. That's not a good thing. There was days of fasts that were called in the Old Testament. God said, call a day of national fasting because the children of Israel are doing things they shouldn't want to do. But there were seven feasts that were mandatory every year. Seven feasts. Once in a while, they would call a fast. But there were seven feasts of time of gathering with God and rejoicing. There's a time to fast and there's a time not to fast is what Jesus was saying. And when the bridegroom is there, it's not a time. But he would be gone and they would find themselves struggling and going through differences in life and really being moved. I also should say one more thing about fasting. When Jesus came off of the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples had been trying to cast a demon out of a boy, but they couldn't do it. And so Jesus came and immediately casted the boy out. <laughs> casted the demon out. He cast the boy out of the demon. He cast the demon out of the boy. And, uh, and the, the disciples later said, how come we couldn't do it? Jesus said, because this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, you might think, well, then you do get spiritual power from prayer. No, I think that he means prayer and fasting for that boy. Really saying, this, this, this kid is oppressed. Jesus really cared that he was oppressed by this demonic spirit. He was passionate about it. 
And when we are really care about something and we show that we are really passionate about it by fasting, not so men can see our passion, but so God can see it because we are really moved by it. Then there's a power that comes that we are really able to take authority because the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much and you are fervent about something when you're willing to fast about what that is. And so then Jesus says things are changing that there's times that are changing. He had just said, the bridegroom's there, you don't fast. When the bridegroom's gone, you fast, so things are changing. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth onto an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into an old wineskin, or else the new wine bursts the wineskin. The wine is spoiled. The wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into a new wineskin. In other words, when God's ready to do something new, he starts a new movement. He doesn't just kind of rework the old one. He starts something new. He doesn't patch up the old one because you put new cloth on there, it tears it away. And he's going to start something new. There's a new work and the old work is leaving. The old work that is leaving is the law. And the Pharisees were the, were, were the representation of the law. But there was a new work coming. And that was love and grace being kind to one another, not trying to show one another up by the great religious acts that you could do. The third part here, as he, as he compares and contrasts them, is in verse 23. Now it happened as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, as they went, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the Sabbath day had said two things. When you were given the Sabbath day in the law, it said two things. Number one, that it was a time of not working. It was a time of rest. God has made us to rest. It's important that we rest. And the Sabbath became an example of Christ because Jesus is our rest. When we come into Jesus, we are entering into our rest. Isn't that good to understand? Isn't that good to know? that you are in Christ and you have rest in Christ today because he is our Sabbath. It was also, you were also to remember God. Those are the two things you do. Number one, you remember God. Number two, you don't work on that day. So the Pharisees came in and they made all kinds of new laws. They rewrote the laws on the Sabbath. And then when Jesus broke their laws that they rewrote, they claimed he broke it. These Sabbatarians did it and Sabbatarians today do it. Those who tell you and me that we are not right for meeting on Sunday morning, that we have to meet on Saturday. Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 16, I think it is, serve God on whatever day you want. One man puts one day above another. Another man has all days alike. Who are you to judge another man's brother? It's not about the Sabbath anymore. We've been set free from the law. But people today rewrite the Sabbath and then tell us we're breaking it. The Sabbath was never about going to the synagogue. In fact, if you lived further away from the synagogue, you couldn't go there on the Sabbath because you couldn't travel over a quarter of a mile on the Sabbath day. So if you lived over a quarter mile away from the synagogue, you couldn't go. So they say gathering together for church is keeping the Sabbath. Where does it ever say that? Where did it ever say keep the Sabbath by gathering together in a synagogue or by gathering together in a temple? It never said it. So they rewrite the Sabbath and then tell you that you are breaking it. I like to tell them that I'm a Sabbatarian. I like to tell them I'm more of a Sabbatarian than they are because I found my real rest in Jesus because Jesus is our, he became our high priest that gave the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice itself that was given 
and he became our rest. He fulfills all the aspects of the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to finish it. That's what that word means, to fulfill. He came to finish the law. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.